0: In every American community, you have varying shades of political opinion. One of the shadiest of these is the liberals. An outspoken group on many subjects. Ten degrees to the left of center in good times. Ten degrees to the right of center if it affects them personally. So here then is a lesson in safe logic I cried when they shot Medgar
1: Evers
0: Tears ran down My spine And I cried when they shot Mr. Kennedy As though I'd lost a father Of mine But Malcolm X Got what was coming He got what he asked For this time so love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. Get it? <laughs> I go to civil rights rally and I put down the old DAR. DAR, that's the dikes of the American Revolution. <laughs> I love Harry and Sidney and Sammy I hope every colored boy becomes a star But don't talk about revolution That's going a little bit too far So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal I cheered when Humphrey was chosen My faith in the system restored And I'm glad that the commies were thrown out From the AFL-CIO bar And I love Puerto Ricans and Negroes As long as they don't move next door
2: So love me, love me,
0: love me I'm a liberal Ah, the people of old Mississippi Should all hang their heads in shame Now I can't understand how their minds work What's the matter, don't they watch less cray But if you ask me to boss my children I hope the cops take down your name So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal Yes, I read New Republic and Nation I've learned to take every view You know, I've memorized Lerner and Golden I feel like I'm almost a Jew But when it comes to times like Korea There's no one more red, white, and blue So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal I vote for the Democratic Party They want the U.N. to be strong I attend all the Pete Seeger concerts He sure gets me singing those songs And I'll send all the money you ask for But don't ask me to come on along So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal Sure, once I was young and impulsive I wore every conceivable pin, even went to socialist meetings, learned all the old union hymns. Ah, but I've grown older and wiser, and that's why I'm turning you in. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal.
2: And that was Love Me, I'm a Liberal by Phil Oaks which you can find on his album There But For Fortune. If you don't know Phil Oaks, you should check Phil Oaks out. Phil Oaks is a brilliant singer-songwriter, topical singer from the 60s into the 70s. He is no longer with us but penned and sang some of the most brilliant political music. Greetings and welcome back to Bernie. 2016. This is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on Bernie Sanders' candidacy and our revolution, the movement that he helped inspire. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, PAC, or political organization. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at com, or you can follow me on Twitter at bernieus 2016. You can find out more about this podcast and make a donation at bernie-2016.com. If you want to donate directly through Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash unrelatedthings. First up this episode, and the reason that I picked that song to lead us off, is a story from counterpunch.org. By Margaret Kimberley Liberals have joined Hillary Clinton's quote, big nasty tent in a very big way. They've moved far beyond the usual rationales for sticking with the Democrats and are now carrying on a full-fledged hate fest. Their targets are Green Party presidential candidate Jill Stein and her running mate Ajamu Baraka who is also a Black Agenda Report editor and columnist. The screeds have become more and more extreme and defy the run-of-the-mill rationales that progressives use to justify remaining within Democratic Party lines. Holding holding one's nose and voting for the lesser evil, Democrat, is passé. So is fear of Republican judicial appointments. Concern for abortion rights doesn't cut it anymore. Liberals are no longer going through the motions of criticizing the Democrat. Instead, they openly show love for Hillary Clinton and disdainfully pile on Stein and Baracka with fury. The blog Wonkette called Jill Stein "quote cunty" and "quote a mendacious nihilist piece of shit." The site Very Smart Brothers declared that a vote for Stein was akin to putting it in the trash. They also threw in a dig at Cornell West because he dared to criticize Barack Obama. The Huffington Post chose to deride Green Party convention delegates because they ate at McDonald's. Gawker tried to link Ajamu Baraka to Holocaust denial. His unassailable human rights credentials didn't mean much when the media decided to go into attack mode. The list is long and will get longer between now and Election Day. The degree of antipathy is actually quite useful. It tells us why the Green Party is so important and why liberals are such a dangerous enemy. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. They spend years wringing their hands because Republicans control state legislatures. But when the recently released DNC emails show that the party starves local races of money, They say nothing. When they spoke up at all, they made a big deal about a spurious Russian hacker connection to Donald Trump. There is no longer any pretense of claiming a desire for systemic change or even calling themselves progressives. They are, quote, with her, as the slogan goes, and her illegal activities and record of mass killing don't dissuade them from supporting her. Liberals don't want the Democrats to change. They cling to a bizarre hope for reform, nibbling around the edges while keeping the criminals in charge. They prefer to look down their noses at Trump supporters or consider themselves the cool kids in the high school clique. When they have an opportunity to make history and begin the process of dismantling the hold of the Democratic Party, they instead become quite vicious. On their behalf. Donald Trump is the perfect foil for their con game. His open appeals to racism and unpredictable statements and behavior give them an excuse to do nothing except make excuses for the very crooked Mrs. Clinton. They don't even feign concern when Republicans who contributed to Chris Christie and John Kasich start doling out dollars to Hillary. They long ago gave up on fighting for peace and just, as the name of Trump is a one-word attack ad. Questions about foreign policy turn into harangues directed against Vladimir Putin. Liberals have sided with the ruling classes and resist anyone pointing out the truth. While they falsely accuse Jill Stein of being anti-vaccine even after she clearly stated she was pro-vaccine, American police departments keep up their body count. The United States risks war with China and Russia and unemployment is still high, but they say nothing about any of those issues. They cheerlead for Hillary Clinton, just as they did for Barack Obama, and will say nothing against her once she is in office. The election of 2016 will be a notable one in history, but for all the wrong reasons. Millions of people voted for the not-so-left-wing Bernie Sanders who wasn't serious about denying Clinton the nomination. Yet it must be said that they wanted change within the Democrat Party. He left his followers high and dry and made the case for the people who feared and scorned his half-hearted campaign. Liberals are now quite deranged and applaud a woman who will crush their feeble agenda as soon as she says the oath of office. Progressives and big-money Republicans are now on the same page, and that is why Stein and Baraka face so much scrutiny and so many big lies. The Green Party's existence is proof that the Democratic Party emperor has no clothes. The logical progression of success for the Greens is the end of the party which claims to be more inclusive and the champion of working people and human rights, it does none of those things, while the party which actually articulates these policies has been designated an enemy. In this case, the enemies of the enemy are most definitely our friends. And along similar lines, this piece from inquisitor.com by Caitlin Johnstone. There's something about the Olympics that brings out the armchair expert in all of us, it's so much fun. Suddenly, you have hard and fast opinions about obscure sports like water polo and equestrian, and you find yourself arguing with the TV about half-point deductions in the diving. Most of us know that we're just pretending, though. Some people take that a little too far. I have to say the invention of the word mansplaining was something of a relief to me. Finally, there was a word for that weird, creepy thing men do when they assume authority over you when they have none. You wrote a book? I read a book once. It was green. The thing about writing books is... According to Wikipedia, the word was born from an essay called Men Explain Things to Me by Rebecca Solnit. In it, she tells an anecdote where she was at a party when a man, on hearing that she wrote books about the photographer... Edward Moybridge told her that she really should read this wonderful new book on Moybridge that he had just read and proceeded to tell her all about this Moybridge guy. Yes, you guessed it, it was her book that he had read. The behavior has been around since men could grunt, but it wasn't until there was a word for it that we could stop being polite. And it's important that we're not polite. As Solnit points out, if left unchecked, it means that the voices of the overconfident and the undereducated bully the educated ones into self-doubt and silence. In effect, it means stupid wins. We can laugh uneasily about it, but it creates a toxic situation when those boorish loudmouths seize control of the narrative and take authorship of the political space. Because that's what authority is. It's taking authorship. Same root word. And when you hand over the authorship of the planet to a buffoon whose mother failed us all when she never once said to him, Oh, do shut up, Donald. Then you're handing over the reins to an idiot with no idea. The latest victim of the mansplaining phenomena is Dr. Jill Stein. Jill Stein is an incredibly impressive woman. She graduated magna cum laude from Harvard University, graduated from Harvard Medical School, practiced internal medicine at Beth Israel Hospital for 25 years, and taught medicine at Harvard Medical School. She's written several books reviewing and aggregating information from scientific studies on medicine, health, and the environment. She's extremely well-read and quick-witted, And even Einstein would be impressed at how she can tweet the most complex of arguments in 140 characters. She truly is a woman for the moment. You'd be a fool to fight her on anything, really. Her grip on foreign affairs is formidable, and the truth bombs she keeps throwing in her interviews on Fox and at the town hall on CNN have even the most jaded of journalists running for cover. But you'd especially be a fool to fight her on her home turf, science, and medicine. And yet, that is what's happening. In a coordinated attack initiated by Robert Naaman, policy director of Just Foreign Policy, in this email leaked to Counterpunch, the memo stated the following. Quote, if you have a lot of Facebook friends, you may have recently noticed a high level of activity on your Facebook feed by Jill Stein, Acolytes. If so, you may find the following links useful to throw them off their game. No warranty, express or implied. You don't have to prove that Jill Stein is an anti-science conspiracy theorist. You just have to say, quote, There are unanswered questions about whether Jill Stein is an anti-science conspiracy theorist done. In one swift movement, the mansplaining attack dogs of the progressive movement were set upon Dr. Jill Stein and her supporters, armed with a swath of clickbait headlines leading to some scantily facted attack editorials. It's a genius move, really, for a conflicted progressive who's secretly worried about Trump throwing even a tiny bit of shade on Jill's immaculate record will put a wobble on their thing for her. And science is a perfect divide-and-conquer issue amongst progressives, too, as progressives are mostly either intellectuals or hippies, but rarely both. It splits them right down the middle. But here's the thing. Dr. Jill Stein is a doctor. You can tell, because her name is Dr. Jill Stein. Isn't that neat? So that should be that. She's a doctor of medicine, an esteemed published one, A Harvard Magna Cum Laude graduate. In no universe should this smear stick. Except, of course, in the mansplaining universe. No amount of diplomas or letters after her name can deter Mr. Mansplain from splaining science to a woman of science. He read a book once. It was green. Let him expound on you vociferously while you edge closer to the bar or the door or both. You must know about the screen book. I think you'll find it very interesting, miss. What was your name again? Oh, doctor. Well, you should find it very interesting then. The problem is, though, this is their ivory tower. Remember, this is the intelligista, intelligentsia. These are people who pride themselves on critical reading, hard data, peer reviews, and thorough research, right? but to show such a gross lack of interest in finding any evidence at all to support their assertion that Dr. Jill Stein is anti-science belies their purported fondness for the scientific method. To be so gullible as to be taken in by a completely baseless scare campaign, and not even show enough cynicism to do a quick Google search before posting, well, it's all a bit awkward. I hardly like to even point it out to them, poor things. It's just embarrassing. Imagine when they work it out. Dear Lord, the cognitive dissonance is going to be horrendous. So don't expect any mea culpa's anytime soon, hey? To truly grok how meekly they submitted to manipulation will take the kind of soul-searching humility not often seen in the highbrow intellectual crowd. But send them scuttling for evidence and they will be forced to walk Watch Dr. Jill in action, and once they've seen her mercilessly dismantle yet another hack talking head with her scythe like intelligence, they might just have to change their minds about her. And from the hill dot com by Mike Lillis. In a Monday letter to the Department of Homeland Security, Senators Bernie Sanders and Representative Raul Grejva, or Grijalva I don't know if there will be a day when I'll pronounce that right on the first go said the for-profit facilities should be phased out because of their poor track record when it comes to safety, efficiency and basic human rights protections. Energized by the Justice Department's recent decision to end the agency's use of privately operated facilities, they're asking dHs secretary j J Donson J. Johnson to follow suit. quote given the impact on detainees, the high cost to taxpayers, and the Department of Justice's recent decision, we believe the Department of Homeland Security can and should immediately begin phasing out for-profit, privately-run immigration detention centers, Sanders and Grijalva wrote. The lawmakers have long opposed the government's reliance on for-profit prisons and detention centers, having sponsored legislation last year to ban them entirely across all agencies. Sanders also made the issue a focal point of his failed presidential run, arguing that the private companies too often prioritize profit motives over the safety of inmates and detainees. The critics got a huge boost last week when the DOJ announced it would stop renewing private prison contracts when they expire. The department had resorted to for-profit facilities as federal inmate numbers grew and overcrowding became a problem, Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates argued in an August 18th memo. But a recent decrease in the prison population, from 220,000 in 2013 to 195,000 today, has made the extra space unnecessary. Yates also leaned heavily on an internal DOJ Inspector General report, finding that the for-profit facilities performed worse than government-run prisons when it came to providing rehabilitation services, reducing recidivism rates, and ensuring the safety and security of inmates and personnel. Sanders and Grijalva said those same problems plagued the for-profit facilities monitored by the DHS, resulting in health problems among immigrant detainees Quote, "in fact the lack of proper medical care in for profit facilities led to the deaths of several detainees the lawmakers charged" and another piece from the hill This by Shawnee Badger I used to think that the Democrats were the good guys and the Republicans were the bad guys. That's why I've only ever been registered and identified as a Democrat. The Democratic Party is a party of social justice that looks out for the less fortunate, right? The party of the middle class advocating for equality and progress, while the Republican Party is well, stuck in the distant past. I was correct about the Republican Party, but I was incredibly wrong about the Democratic Party. Yes, I'm a Senator Bernie Sanders supporter. Specifically, I was a California delegate to the National Convention. Yes, I'm also a millennial. No, I will not be supporting Hillary Clinton this November. And also, let me clarify no, I'm not a man, so don't call me sexist. And now, the question on many progressives' minds can Clinton, the Democratic nominee, represent progressive voters and issues important to progressives? No, she can't. What's so unprogressive about Clinton, you ask? Where do I even begin? She won't ban fracking or implement a carbon tax. She formerly enthusiastically pushed the Trans-Pacific Partnership, once calling it the gold standard. She is funded by lobbyists for private prisons. She led the charge for violent, deadly, and destructive regime change in Libya and Syria and supported the coup in Honduras. She is against reinstating the Glass-Steagall Act. She is not a transparent politician. If she were, she would have released the transcripts of her speeches that she gave to Wall Street events, which, by the way, must have been sheer utter genius considering how much she was paid to give those speeches. She supported the 2008 Wall Street bailout. She supports the former Democratic National Committee Chair, Rep. Debbie Wasserman Schultz. She is not only pandering to Republicans for their support but she is seeking the endorsement of President Nixon's former Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger. She favors a federal $12 minimum wage rather than $15. She is pro-death penalty. She appointed pro-TPP, pro-fracking former Senator Ken Salazar as chair of her presidential transition team. She is open to constitutional restrictions on abortion. She has deep ties to Walmart and served on its corporate board during the 1990s. She has ties to Monsanto, which has made oh-so-generous donations to the Clinton Foundation, and is a supporter of genetically modified organisms. The list goes on. Her international arms deals as Secretary of State, her campaign finance scheme, where some state parties are, quote, essentially money-laundering conduits, as Politico reported her campaign's involvement with Correct to the Record Super PAC, her support of the war in Iraq, her advocacy of a no-fly zone in Syria, and her call for more U.S. special forces there, her refusal to embrace single-payer universal health care, and her acceptance of donations from pharmaceutical and health insurance companies. Remember when Clinton was against gay marriage until 2013? I know what you're thinking, but 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 all her recent speeches and statements seem progressive. Look at her nomination acceptance speech. I hate to burst your bubble, but Clinton cannot be trusted. From big issues like lying about emailing classified information from her private server to small things like lying about coming under sniper fire. I mean, why pick a pro-life, pro-offshore drilling, pro-TPP, white male as your vice president? If you want to unify with Sanders supporters, it's clear why. Because Clinton cannot represent the progressive vote. And guess what? Neither can the Democratic Party. Not anymore. Now, maybe you're thinking that it's Clinton and her crony politics that are the problem, not the entire Democratic Party. I'll give you that. It's not the entire party. It's just too much of the party to make staying and fighting worth it. It's like a good friend of mine says. It's an abusive relationship. You know it's so unhealthy to stay with this abusive person and that you deserve better. You know in reality that this person is not going to change, yet you stay. Why? Fear is at the core. You stay, that is, until that magic day when enough is enough. Well, guess what, my friends? That day has come. Hope can be a beautiful thing. Hope can also be extremely destructive and blinding. That is why this November I will reject the lesser of two evils and I will fight for the greater good. I will support the Green Party nominee Jill Stein not because she's a woman or because I'm scared of GOP nominee Donald Trump, but because she is a true champion of progressive values. Remember, votes are earned, not owed. And this next piece from Michael San Senato on theobserver.com. As Donald Trump's polls have plummeted over the past few weeks, Hillary Clinton has taken her support from progressive Bernie Sanders supporters for granted. Her shift to the middle, although predictable and unsurprising to Sanders supporters, has been demoralizing. While Senator Sanders opted to formally endorse, Clinton for president. His lack of enthusiasm in doing so attests to his prioritizing the issues he is passionate about over partisan politics. On August 24, Sanders is hosting a live stream event to kick off his new organization, Our Revolution. Quote If we are successful, what it will mean is that the progressive message and the issues that I campaigned on will be increasingly spread throughout this country. Sanders told USA Today. The goal here is to do what I think the Democratic establishment has not been very effective in doing, and that is, at the grassroots level, encourage people to get involved. Give them the tools they need to win. Help them financially. After a divisive Democratic convention, Sanders reverted back to calling out the establishment on both sides of the aisle. He criticized President Obama for continuing to support the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. Recently, health insurance company Aetna pulled out of Obamacare after the company's merger with Cigna hit obstacles in Connecticut due to an ethics probe into Democratic Governor Daniel Malloy. In the wake of this minor disaster, Sanders has been revitalizing support for a single-payer health care system. Despite his no longer being in the running for president, Sanders has garnered much more positive news coverage than Clinton. Our revolution, in particular, is one of Sanders' most attention-grabbing efforts to reorganize the enthusiasts and activists from his presidential campaign into a long-term political movement. Quote, "I feel like there is a real chance for something else to happen beyond Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. "We're still two and a half months away with the possibility of another damaging WikiLeaks release and Donald Trump continuing to sabotage himself. "I feel like, I feel like there is room for a third party," Mickey Willis told the observer. Willis was a photographer and videographer for Shailene Woodley and Rosario Dawson while they served as Sanders surrogates during his presidential campaign. What we really need to be doing right now is make sure the third party is on the ticket and in the debates in the event something happens with the two frontrunners while at the same time supporting everything Bernie is doing, Willis said. We can do all that. It's not an either-or. We can make sure as many seats in Congress are filled with better people. We can all get behind and donate to the people Bernie is trying to get elected and support all the things he is working on. I don't think we necessarily have to cash all our chips on Hillary Clinton to support Bernie Sanders at this time. During Sanders' presidential campaign, his rallies attracted record attendance. Now that Clinton is officially the Democratic presidential nominee, her campaign rallies are small by comparison. And on to the next piece from the Washington Post com. This is by Jim Tankersley. The Great Recession and the subsequent recovery from it have deepened the wedge between the very wealthy and everyone else in America, plunging the poor deeper into debt and wiping out two-fifths of the wealth held by the families in the heart of the middle class. The wealthiest Americans, meanwhile, appear close to regaining all of their losses over the same period, according to a new analysis released Thursday by the Congressional Budget Office. The analysis shows the wealthiest 10% of Americans now hold three-quarters of the nation's wealth, up from two-thirds in 1989, and a three-percentage-point increase from the start of the recession. Most Americans found themselves with less wealth in 2013 than Americans of a similar age had in 1989, the only age group doing better than its counterparts from a quarter-century ago, with senior citizens. The report was commissioned at the request of Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, who made inequality a central theme of his run for the Democratic presidential nomination this year. In a statement, he said the analysis, quote, "makes clear that since the 1980s there has been an enormous transfer of wealth from the middle class and the poor to the wealthiest people in this country." CBO shows that the median family had about the same amount of wealth, roughly $80,000 in 2013, as it did in 1989 after adjusting for inflation. The average family in the top 10% had $4.1 million in wealth, up from $2.15 million in 1989. Both groups had substantially more wealth before the recession hit, but those at the top, have seen theirs bounce back at a much faster rate than those in the middle. The story at the very bottom is much worse. Americans who live in poverty, or even at the lower end of the middle class, have never had much wealth. They don't tend to play the stock market much, or even own their own houses. From 1989 to 2007, the average family in the bottom 25% of the wealth distribution found itself with around $1,000 in debt. After the recession, that average debt ballooned to $13,000 per family. More than half of the homeowners at that bottom end of the wealth distribution were underwater on their mortgages in 2013, meaning they owe more than their homes are worth. That's up from 10% underwater before the recession. CBO also blames underwater mortgages and increased student borrowing for a broader trend in the recovery, a 50% increase in the share of American homes in debt. In 2007, the report notes 8% of American families were in debt at an average debt level of $20,000 each. By 2013, 12% of families were in debt, and the average level had grown to $32,000. And from CommonDreams.org, A day after the announcement of Clinton's Salazar pick, 269 Sanders delegates sign a statement denouncing it. And this piece is from Roots Action. Weighing in from around the country, 269 Democratic National Convention delegates for Bernie Sanders signed a statement on Wednesday condemning Hillary Clinton's selection of Ken Salazar to chair her transition team. The day after the election, the Sanders delegates blasted Clinton for choosing a strong proponent of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which Clinton supported as Secretary of State, but shifted to say she opposes as a presidential candidate. Quote, Hillary Clinton's selection of a vehement TPP advocate to head her transition team is reinforcing concerns that her actual solidarity is with Wall Street rather than with Main Street or working people, the statement said. The statement added, quote, The choice of Ken Salazar gives further weight to deep suspicions that her election year opposition to the TPP is nothing more than than a cynical and fleeting expedient. By choosing Salazar, she has fired a post-convention warning shot at the huge progressive base of the Democratic Party. Clinton's appointment of Salazar underscores why so many progressives distrust her. And the delegates concluded, If the Democratic presidential nominee wants to set off a protracted war with progressives inside her own party, she is off to a great start. The statement was released by the independent Bernie Delegates Network. The group's national coordinator, Norman Solomon, said Clinton's choice of Salazar, quote, indicates that rhetoric aside, she's tone deaf or contemptuous towards this country's groundswell of opposition to the inordinate power of corporate elites. Donna Smith, the executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, voiced concern about what she called Salazar's, quote, long-term devotion to the oil and gas industry. As senator from my home state of Colorado, Salazar voted in 2006 to remove restrictions on offshore oil drilling in the Gulf of Mexico, Smith said. Then in 2007, he was among only a handful of Democrats who voted against requiring the Army Corps of Engineers to take global warming into account in their work to plan future water projects. It is an embarrassment to me as a Coloradan that Salazar worked so intently to protect the oil and gas industry and other corporate interests that threaten the overall health and well-being of every living being on the planet. And a bravo to those Sanders delegate, delegates that went on record, signed that statement um, condemning Clinton's choice of Salazar to lead her transition team. It's the only way that we have a a chance of recovering or or maintaining any slight progressive inclination that Clinton might harbor is to fight like hell when she goes in the other direction, when she takes stances and when she promotes supporters and promotes people to her campaign and to her potential, uh, presidential cabinet that are not progressive, when we fight against those things, it's the only hope that we have to recover any of the promises that Clinton made during her candidacy that uh, were nods in the liberal or progressive direction. Only holding her feet to the fire is going to have any potential whatsoever to have some positive outcomes. Unfortunately, like we saw with Barack Obama, the real and true liberals, not the liberals that Phillips was singing about at the beginning of the episode, but real liberals, real progressives, will be told in no uncertain terms that they should just shut the hell up when they have a criticism of. Hillary Clinton and be threatened with the alternative to Hillary Clinton, that is Donald Trump, and say, you know, you cannot speak out against what Hillary Clinton stands for or else you're supporting Donald Trump. And I've talked about that bullshit before, but it's important and critical for us to be critical of Hillary Clinton and to not take her or any politician at face value and not trust that they will do what they say they will do. It's important that we unceasingly keep the pressure up to force them to do what they said they would do. Without that, there's no hope whatsoever for any politician that gets a significant amount of power to actually follow through on their promises. Next up, by thyblackman.com. Bernie Sanders' Berniecare can save Obamacare. Bernie Sanders, who is more of a highly skilled political and legislative tactician than pundits understand, has responded to the Aetna withdrawal from many healthcare exchanges by publicly announcing he will wage an all out campaign to enact the public option. The Sanders response to Aetna is perfectly timed and politically powerful. The public option. Which should have been ena- enacted with the original Obamacare program would guarantee that every healthcare exchange will have at least one highly affordable choice for consumers to accept. The result of including a public option on healthcare exchanges would be that one of two things would happen either other insurers would remain on the exchanges to compete for the consumer's dollar, which would create a downward pressure on insurance premiums that benefits consumers or Americans would enroll in the public option en masse which would accelerate the move towards a true single payer system I was a vehement supporter of the public option during the original Obamacare debate it was a tragedy of epic proportion that the public option was not included in the final Obamacare law despite the fact President Obama supported it, and Democrats then had large majorities in the House and Senate. That omission occurred despite strong public support for the public option because of the power of insurance lobbyists in Washington, the obstruction of Republicans in Congress, and the reluctance of a small number of more conservative Democratic senators to defy the insurance lobby. Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, and the Democratic Party are now united in support of the public option. This was one of the more important developments at the time of the Democratic National Convention when the Clinton and Sanders camps unified behind a series of platform positions that included long-held progressive policies and ideas. The Berniecare option has always been a frontal assault against the greed of of certain insurance companies and the lobbying industrial complex that has dominated healthcare policy for far too long. The Bernie Care strategy was dra- dramatized during his campaign for president, where he advocated a full single-payer system, and is now advancing again with the decision of Aetna to abandon most of the Obamacare exchanges. This strategy has taken various forms in recent years. The idea of a public option on the exchanges has always garnered strong public support. The idea of Medicare for All system builds on the enormous public support for the Medicare program. And I would emphasize again today, as I have throughout the presidential campaign, that I believe the reason that Sanders dominated Republican nominee Donald Trump in matchup polls throughout the presidential campaign is that he embodies the kind of progressive populist reformation that voters prefer over the status quo or the conservative alternative. Many analysts believe that the Aetna decision to withdraw from most Obamacare exchanges was a retaliation against the Obama Justice Department taking a strong position on egregious examples of mergers and acquisitions in the insurance industry, including a proposed but rejected merger sought by Aetna. I fully support the Justice Department's policy, deplore the Aetna withdrawals, and expect the Aetna move to backfire. Among the many reasons that Sanders is supporting Clinton for president and turning his attention to electing other Democrats to regain control of the Senate and potentially the House of Representatives is that he is poised to become one of the most powerful and important senators if Democrats regain control. If Democrats regain control of the Senate, Bernie Sanders will have a fascinating will have fascinating options as to which Senate committee he will chair. He can take his revolution to the federal budget as chairman of the Senate Budget Committee. Even more interesting is that Bernie Sanders could have the opportunity to take his revolution to even more immediate heights as chairman of the Senate Committee on Health, Education, and Labor and Pensions if the only Democrat above him in seniority, Senator Patty Murray, Democrat Washington, chooses to to chair the Senate Appropriations Committee instead. Republicans and conservatives are rejoicing at the decision of Aetna to abandon most Obamacare exchanges. But does the GOP really want to become the party of higher insurance premiums, working as a handmaiden of insurance industry lobbyists? The stage is set for Sanders to campaign throughout the nation and in Congress for his Berniecare alternative. Joined by Clinton and Democratic leaders, making the Democrats the party of lower insurance premiums, the great change agent battling lobbyists and influence peddlers who want to stick it to American families and consumers. It will be ironic if Bernie Care saves Obamacare, and the big winners are the American consumers. And that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2016. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com or you can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. Heading out today, we will hear the song Hero, Feel the Burn by Joey Patron, which you can find on YouTube by searching for joey patrone thanks for listening i think we need a hero
1: somebody to trust who's looking out for us in Ottawa wall street and they can pick us up we've been getting kicked back into the mud and we feel stuck i think we need a hero Cause we can't see through the darkness And we don't know who to blame Even with the flames inside our eyes If we could see the light We'd already be to the other side And feeling bright I think we need a hero So help us start a fire
2: We will end it for them.